We are It's More Than Just a Chant. We are inspirational creators, difference makers, world changers, and we are one community. Join alums Jared and Ross as they uncover stories of Penn Staters and their unique professional and personal journeys. We are Penn State, and this is Lion Legacy. Episode number 49 of Lion Legacy. We're getting closer to that number 50, Ross, our 50th anniversary episode coming up. We got to figure out what we're doing, right? I, I want to have a little pomp and circumstance, but we haven't figured it out yet. I, I assume you've already secured a present for me, right? You got a customized cake <laughs> with your name on it. And it's just going to say all right in like all right in rap text. We should ask our friends at Lions Pride maybe if they can start an all right clothing. T-shirts. Line. Hey, I'm up for a T-shirt. There you go. There you do, go. Do we have a market? Do you think people would buy that? I don't know. That's a good. <laughs> that's a good question. We'll uh, we'll find out maybe one day. <laughs> One day. Hey, we're talking theme parks for episode number 49. We've got a great Penn State alum. But before we dive in, Ross, I'm curious, favorite theme park or theme park experience? Yeah, so I, I was never I wasn't really a big theme park kid. Went to Disney World with my family, I think, when I was 10 years old. Again, when I was like maybe 15. But in the meantime, though, I did a, a travel summer camp when I was like 13 and 14 years old. And a lot of the locations were theme parks as we went on these like bus trips. And I, so, you know, being 13, 14 years old and having friends that were like, yeah, we're going to go on all the roller coasters. And I was like, peer pressure, right? Got to be a big kid here and like, just do it. And so I peer pressured myself to just go on the rides and I ended up really enjoying them. I went to a lot of parks, the Six Flags and Cedar Point in Ohio. It's, oh. It was a fun one. Cedars, I think that's what it's called. It's the one that's by Cleveland. There, those that's, are some big roller coasters. There. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They the one that was real tall. I don't, I'm, I don't remember any of the names of these rides, but you know what I'm talking about. And there was another one. It was actually a Paramount Park down in Virginia. I think somewhere near Richmond. They had a lot of cool rides. Are you thinking um, Bush Gardens? No, it wasn't no. Bush Gardens. There was another one down there. Again, this is all escaping me. I don't remember the names of any of these. This is all more years ago than I'd like to admit. But and then you know what I really enjoyed. For the Capital One Ball when we were in school and we went to Islands of Adventure, which I think was fairly new in Orlando at the time. That was a you lot of right. fun. That was I, actually on one of mine on, on my list, actually, yeah. to talk about because I remember Hulk. I this is exactly what I was gonna say. We uh, were on the Hulk line. Yeah, it was raining. I remember we had Penn State fans, we had a few Auburn fans there as well. We were playing yep. Auburn that year, and I just remember this we are chant as yep. we were all waiting on the Hulk line and thinking, man, this is pretty cool. I'm at a theme park and we are surrounded by Penn Staters, which is great. My other memory, actually freshman year, spring break, I went down with my buddy, Andrew. We went down to Disney World, actually, and we rode the Aerosmith Rock and Roll roller coaster. Yeah. Which is at Hollywood Studios. And I think we rode that about, I don't know, 10 or 15 times in a row. In a row. We would literally just get off the <laughs> ride, go to the front, and sit back in and strap in. And it was an indoor, it is an indoor 
a roller coaster, which which is pretty cool. Obviously, the Aerosmith music, which is amazing. Yep. But yeah, just fond memories. I went down to the parks as a kid. I'd probably been to Disney maybe, I don't know, 10 times. Really? So really just, You've been there that yeah, many times? I've been, I don't know that I realized that. Been that many times. All yeah. Right. Yeah. I'm a big fan of the theme parks and I think our guest today has played an integral role in making a lot of people's memories and highlights. Yep. But before we get into that, you wanted to give credit to Katie O'Toole's podcasting class. We had a great student, Courtney McGinley from Professor O'Toole's podcasting class. We really enjoyed the partnership and the students have come up with a lot of great guests. So thanks to Courtney for bringing on our guest today, Rachel DeSantis. Yeah, so we spoke with Rachel, who is a currently a senior manager of ride and show programs at Universal Studios Hollywood. So she spoke with us live from California and talked about her career progression. Talk about, we're going to get into it, but she knew from early on, like theme parks were her gig. Like she loves them and she went on a trajectory to get her to where she wanted to be as far as being involved with the concept and engineering, working for some of the biggest theme park companies. We're going to get into all that. I don't like to give too much away, but really cool. Again, this is one of those, Jared, where we, as I like to say, we get under the hood of, of how it all works. We've all been to theme parks as a guest and you don't really know what goes on from an engineering perspective and a creative perspective and safety and in, in all that. That's all was really cool stuff that we get into with Rachel and it was a lot of fun. So with that, Jared, get your tickets, get in line. We're going to take a ride. Roller coaster ride, right? Theme park attraction ride, whatever your ride is. We're going to take a ride with Rachel DeSantis. All right. Let's welcome Rachel DeSantis, a 2013 graduate with a degree in mechanical engineering. Rachel is a theme park engineer and has spent time with both the Walt Disney and Universal companies. Currently, she's the senior manager ride and show programs at Universal Studios Hollywood. I am a huge fan of theme parks and spent many vacations visiting them. So it's very exciting to have you on Lion Legacy, Rachel. Thanks for taking the time. Happy to be here. So Rachel, such a cool profession. We're excited to jump in here. Let's go way back. Do you remember, was there a time way back when you said, hey, I want to be an engineer for theme park rides? Is it safe to assume that you were also a big fan of theme parks and rides when you were growing up? Absolutely. My entire childhood, my family and I spent our family vacations every year going down to Orlando and visiting the Disney and Universal parks. And that just became a second home for me. I, it was really a, something I looked forward to every year, going and spending that time with them there. Uh, a lot of folks that get pulled, drawn to the theme park, themed entertainment world, found themselves to be misfits in their youth, myself included. And the theme parks provide that kind of safe space, that surrealism, that escapism for people. And I was really drawn to that my entire youth. And then going into high school, I had that moment, that exact moment that you mentioned, where I decided this is what I was going to do. I was just getting into roller coasters. I was such a scaredy cat as a child. But as a teenager, I started exploring roller coasters. And I found out that I love that adrenaline high very much. So I had a teacher my sophomore year in geometry asked us to do an assignment on a career you can use math in and i was like 
there's got to be something with this roller coasters thing. And I looked into it. And I was like, oh my God, it's a whole, there's a whole industry. Like, why didn't I think of this before? I was 14. That's why. So I did my report on that. And I set myself down a path to be a theme park engineer. And that, that dream and goals have evolved over time. But I think I'd make sophomore yourself pretty proud. I'm curious. You mentioned you thought you were a misfit growing up. What, what made you think that? As a kid, I just always felt a little different and I didn't know why for a very long time. And uh, turns out in my mid to late twenties, I figured it out. I'm very queer. <laughs> um, and that just, it kind of all clicked. Like my whole life clicked in that moment. And uh, you'll find, I have found that in this industry, you'll find a lot of my queer community members here as well. Interesting. Great that you have that community, not only from a work standpoint, but from a, yeah. a personal standpoint as well. That's amazing. Yeah. So we're going to, we're going to dive in more here on how this all works, right? How, what you do fits into the grand scheme of the theme park, at the industry, the app of the company. And so first let's talk about the different departments within a theme park, right? And is engineering the one that says this is possible and this is how we can be, this is how it can be executed safely. Give us some high level insight as to how the process goes from concept to execution. For sure. So I can start with different departments. When you are looking at an actual theme park and operating a theme park, we have so many different departments that make up that, that business and engineering is absolutely the one that is making the calls every day on, is this safe to run? Can we open for our guests? How do we keep this attraction open today? And it's not something that we have to ask very often, but those types of decisions come to us. And then our primary goal is keep it operating every day. So we don't get to those types of questions. We also have our operating partners that are actually the folks operating the attractions out, out in the parks. We have within our technical department, we have technicians that are doing the daily maintenance on the attractions so that they can open every morning. We've got food and retail partners, marketing, finance, legal, it's a whole business. When you get into the actual process of designing an attraction, it's more of a project in that world. And the engineers in that realm are focused on how do we make the creative team's intent a reality? What sort of technology is available or what kind of innovation can we do to make that happen in physical space? And then once you do that, how do we make it safe? <laughs> so you'll start a project in what's called the blue sky phase where anything's possible. You're tossing out ideas. There's no wrong answers. And at that point, the engineers in there trying to help steer towards something that we could actually do. And once you exit out of that, that phase, you enter into design where you're working with your creative team, your technical team, and your facility team to all develop a full design package that has all the systems and facility integrating together so that you can actually build it. Then you go into building and that takes a while, but it's also a very fun time of the project where you're seeing it all come to life. And then once you've got every the facility built and your systems installed, you'll start commissioning phase where you are making sure that all of your technical systems are performing the way they're supposed to, that they are achieving that creative intent that I mentioned and that they're safe. We will always spend months <laughs> doing that validation, that commissioning to make sure that all three of those things are happening. And just curious from, and I know it will also vary 
depending on the ride and the attraction. What's the time period of some of the rides that you've worked on from that first blue sky phase to, all right, we've got our first guest on that ride? It totally depends. If you're doing what we sometimes call a lift, where you're taking kind of an existing attraction and maybe modifying it or trying to build it again, that's going to be something that takes maybe two to three years to do. If you're doing something brand new from the start, that can take five to seven. It depends on just how many iterations you go through in that design phase and how complicated it is. Wow. That is a journey for sure. <laughs> Jared, ja, real quick, as Rachel's speaking, I'm thinking about, and Rachel, I'm sure you've seen this clip. Was it called Adventure Park from the 80s in New Jersey? They had those oh, crazy- Action Park. Action Park. Thank you. With the, Jared, have you ever seen this? You know what I'm talking about? I have seen this, yes. With the water slides in the lake. And as we're talking about theme park safety, and I'm just thinking about, granted, that was like 40 odd years ago. That, the 80s were a time. Yeah. Yeah. But just how far things have come to that being like oh, an yeah. actual paid guest attraction to where Universal and all of the, you know, the other ones out there are like safety to a T, obviously. Right. And yes. thankfully. Anyway, I'm just kind of making that corollary in my head. I'm thinking, <laughs> thinking about how things used to be. Back in the we day, back in the day. Way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> when I was doing some research, you've obviously interned at Disney, which I mentioned before in the intro. I read you performed hands-on repairs on one of my favorite attractions, Country Bear Jamboree, which is like <laughs> such a cool one. By no means is a scary ride, but it's, it's a cool, cool attraction that I always enjoyed growing up. Yeah, it's a fun show. So I'm curious, what what would happen? Would someone something just stop working middle of the show and you would have to go out there and fix it? Like, it never happened when I was at a show, but I'm just curious, what was your role and the process there? Well, sometimes things like that do break in the middle of a show and they're not going to come out and fix it. They're just going <laughs> to let the show finish and then they'll address it. But in this particular case, all all theme parks try to do some sort of planned upgrades so that way you try to avoid those scenarios that i just mentioned where things break the country bear jamboree is a very old attraction <laughs> and yes. in in 2012 it was very much due for a rehab so we actually had a planned shutdown to the attraction where my the team that i was working on was going in and actually completely rebuilding the animatronics in that venue and I had the opportunity to work not only with fellow interns on it, but some actual Disney animatronic experts as we were doing that. And it was incredible. It was my first in-field, on-site experience. Really cool to see that happening. And just one of my top memories of my time with Disney. That's awesome. So does it look more more modern then? Is that a better way no, of saying it? can't even tell, honestly. Because okay. <laughs> <laughs> all I, all of the mechanics inside are covered by the... So there's a like a fiberglass form over the mechanics inside that give you the body, the shape of the bear. And then there will be a skin that has all the fur that goes on top of that. And it'll actually it'll be buttons that you'll stick the skin, the fur onto that it sticks onto that fiberglass and keeps its wow. shape and actually makes it move like a bear, a live bear would move. <laughs> Am I right that there was a bear that would come down from the ceiling and like swing? Yes, absolutely. I think Ross, you're looking a little confused. I'm remembering maybe I saw, where, which park was that? That's at the Magic Kingdom. Magic, Magic Kingdom. Kingdom. Okay. I was there when I was a kid, took my kids there pre-COVID, but I, I, I 
don't know, maybe the line was too long. I don't have as I mean, much of a vivid memory of Country Bear as Jared does. There was an incredibly popular Disney movie that came out of that ride. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's very silly. Which no. one, which Disney movie was this? The Country Bear Jamber. The I think it was the Disney Country Bears. It was like, oh, oh, the same name? Yeah. All right, I'll have to check it out. It had all the characters. That one I missed then. Maybe I've got to go back. Super popular movie. I know what Jared's going to queue it up on his Disney Plus this weekend. There you go. You're right on. You're right on. After your time at Walt Disney World, you then graduate Penn State. You joined a company called Thinkwell, which specializes in designing innovative and dynamic experiences. I'd love to learn a little bit about some of the projects you worked on during your time there. Absolutely. Thinkwell was a very fun time for me just coming out of college and seeing what else was in this industry because I had only really set my sights on Disney at that time and expanding my horizons to see that there were other companies that did this type of work was awesome. So I found Thinkwell and it turns out there's a number of other uh, boutique creative firms like it that the non-Disney and Universal of the world utilize to come up with their creative concepts for their location-based entertainment, their themed entertainment experiences that they want to do. I started with working in the design phase for the now open Warner Brothers World theme park that's in Abu Dhabi. I also was a, I served as like the tour manager, which meant that I was coordinating and leading the transitions between different locations for a traveling museum exhibit themed to Sesame Street. Wow. Yeah. I also was the technical manager on the Hunger Games traveling exhibit, which admittedly was my favorite because I was a huge Hunger Games fan. And I got to go to Atlanta to the movie warehouse where we picked out props and outfits, costumes to put in the exhibit. That was super cool. And then I got to go to the premiere in Hollywood, which was a super fangirl moment for me. (laughs) Um, And then the last project that I worked on there was an indoor ski park in the country of Oman. And that actually just opened this year. Have you been? No, I've never been to Oman. I did get to go to Dubai. There's a similar experience called Ski Dubai. And I did get to go there for the project, which was very cool. (laughs) That's the indoor skiing one. Is that right? What was the role with that project in terms of? So I was always, I was on the, I was a technical associate, I think. So I was, I was always in the technical world where my job was to try to find the right technology to fit the programming that our creative team came up with and then helping get that design through kind of preliminary schematics and working with the vendors of the systems that we'll be want, we want to put into those experiences and trying to get the specs that we need coordinated with our facility folks so that we can get a package that could actually get built. Fantastic. So then building on that, I think the next question is a little bit of a softball then with all that cool experience that you had to think, well, I imagine that's a great experience as you move over to universal, right? Oh yeah. Think well really threw a lot at me responsibility wise being so young and out of school and i i guess i thrived but yeah that kind of pressure and that kind of responsibility really helped me build my confidence in that this is a world that i fit in and i can thrive i came out of think well thinking that i could really do anything <laughs> so and i took that with me as i was interviewing with universal and 
the transition from Thinkwell to Universal was pretty different because Thinkwell was very kind of high level concept, whereas Universal, I'm getting more into the technical nitty gritty with my work here. And considering I hadn't done that since Penn State, like actually doing a lot of that technical work, the confidence that Thinkwell gave me that made me feel like I could do anything was very important because <laughs> I knew I that if I didn't know what I was doing, I knew how to figure it out at the very least. <laughs> yeah, you definitely have worn many different hats is that normal with other colleagues or do they are they more like focused and specialized in one area and i'm an expert only in this where you seem to have been you know had your hands and everything honestly i see a bit of both there's definitely a number of subject matter experts in this world that are very focused on their particular discipline but because this industry is pretty small and everybody knows everybody and has worked on so many different projects together and has had to work make work with other disciplines to make sure that their discipline worked that everybody is a bit of a jack of all trades at some point and to some extent which is pretty cool yeah definitely speaking of diversity one of your roles at universal focused on updating existing attractions so they may met current safety standards curious can you share a couple examples that you that were made and i imagine a lot of those updates are unnoticeable, right, to visitors like myself and Ross. Sure thing. So this is actually what's been my sole focus in my time at Universal. I've grown from an associate engineer up to a senior manager, but the whole time my scope has been focused on updating existing attractions. And what that entails is bringing old technology up to modern technology. And in that process, ensuring that the new systems we install are meeting current safety and technical specs and standards. Because when some of our attractions were built, there, there weren't standards to build to. As we mentioned, the 80s mm-hmm. action park. <laughs> yep. <Wildlife>. Exhibit A. <laughs> <laughs> so as we go in and we touch these legacy attractions, we have to ensure that what we are installing does in fact meet today's requirements. So that that's really been what I've done most of my time, actually all of my time at Universal. And it started with an attraction called Waterworld, which is a stunt show spectacular here at Hollywood. I was a lead of a control system upgrade. So a lot of my work has been primarily in control systems with Universal and upgrading those, those systems here. Because when these attractions were installed in the 80s and 90s, the tech was very different. <laughs> and they're now obsolete. If we ever have something that fails, it becomes increasingly harder to replace it, which means it's going to be harder to get the attraction open that day. And that's not what we want. We want these attractions to last 10 or 15 years more, if not longer. So I did Waterworld, and then I moved on to Jurassic Park, which like the Orlando parks, it's a log flume ride, a river adventure, if you will. And we had a planned downtime for that attraction of nine months just to do this upgrade, this technical systems upgrade, which is something that, as you mentioned, would have been totally unnoticeable to guests. And I'm really grateful that our leadership saw the opportunity to use that downtime and make something better for our guests. And we actually significantly grew that project and we turned Jurassic Park into Jurassic World. 
and it's a, such a big improvement to the guest experience and it made it so much easier to market why we were closed for nine months <laughs> when we reopened so that was really exciting because that turned into a much bigger project and it was that project team was cool great to work with because it was part of the universal creative group which was very fun then i've done some other work around the park i now lead the team that does these upgrades and we're doing a variety of work across the park from we'll do things as small as that particular projector is obsolete and we can't replace it can we upgrade it and we'll do a project like that to the these ride vehicles are reaching end of life and we need to replace them and then we're also looking at full attraction renovations where we will do all of the controls and mechanical hydraulics facility and upgrade all of that to bring that attraction from the 1980s to the full 2020s. Wow. I, first of all, on, on the Jurassic, I've been on the Jurassic park ride there. I haven't been mm -hmm. on Jurassic world. I just remember always being like, when is it going to drop? It's always that <laughs> like, you, you don't know when it's coming. And then the dinosaur comes out of the side as well. When the uh, dinosaur comes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then the other thing is you're talking about this and upgrading the safety standards. Like how do you know when something is towards end of life or needs that upgrade? We will get notifications from the equipment manufacturers when they are end of lifing some of their equipment. And then we generally, when they give us a warning of, Hey, this product's getting mature and we're not going to support it in so many years. So that's something that we're going to get like flagged to me to start looking at and planning ahead in the future. So my role now is actually more strategic where I'm leading the team and I'm trying to plan ahead for which attractions we need to focus on in the near future. Sure. And as you were mentioning, I'm going to stick with the Jurassic Park, Jurassic World for a sure. second. As you were mentioning, like how you, you came in to do certain upgrades and then it ended up being like much larger in scope. Do you get involved in the like budget conversations? Because I imagine like your team, okay, when it's safety, it's one thing, right? Like you can't put a price on safety, whatever needs to be done. I'm sure they, I'm, right. as an outsider, I guess they would support that. But when you come to like, hey, not only are we going to upgrade something that's end of life, but now we're going to go and make this bigger, better, cooler, fill in your adjective there. Do you get involved in like the cost of all that or no? So not for Jurassic, but since moving on from Jurassic and now being the lead of this team, I, I do. I use, I use the historical data that we have from past projects to build our high level budgets. And then as we go through kind of feasibility of some of these projects, we'll dial that budget in a bit better. But yeah, it is my job and the job of some of my project managers to come up with those initial estimates for the cost to, to do these upgrades. Very cool. So I think you may have mentioned some of them as far as your favorite or most rewarding attraction you've worked on. Is it one that you've listed, one that you haven't listed? It what, is what do you think? absolutely Jurassic World. Okay. <laughs> it was incredible to be part of the transformation of that attraction. But besides that, it was the first project that I have ever taken from initial concept design all the way through execution. And that's just a really special thing for folks in this industry to seeing the thing that you worked on when it was just a thought come all the way to life and then being able to watch the guests enjoy it after you've spent years laboring over it is incredible. So that's really it. And the project team on that one was just so great. It was such a wonderful experience working with creative on that and I, something I'll appreciate for the rest of my life for sure. I don't know if you know this, but you are the second person we've had on this podcast with a connection to the Jurassic Park 
Sarah. Really? Yeah. So we had on a few episodes ago, actually, Chip Kidd, who was the original graphic designer for Michael Crichton's book. For the logo. Oh, very cool. Yeah. So the dinosaur silhouette, he designed that. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I also have so many stickers with that on it. <laughs> and he's a Penn Stater. There you go. Heck yeah. That's we awesome. are everywhere. Yeah. Yes, we are. <laughs> so I want, I want to dive in a little bit on your perspective, right? Engineering is typically a male-dominated industry. I imagine even in Penn State, in the classrooms, you are in the minority. Yeah. How are you helping to bring more women into the field? Uh, you are totally right. I vividly remember classes where I was one or maybe two females in the room. So definitely something that I am supportive of bringing more women into this field. And I'm really proud to say that on my team of 14, I've got a really solid 50, 50 ratio of men. Wow. Women. So that's, that's awesome. amazing. Excellent. Yeah. But I'm really grateful to universal because they really encourage and help facilitate events to help us do that. Through Universal, I've gotten to participate in a number of events with a group called Girls Who Code. I did like a hands-on presentation where I walked the, we walked them through a designing a very simple control system with an Arduino board and then participated in some career panels with them to help inspire those girls into continuing into STEM. I've also done a number of SWE conferences, doing another one later this fall, trying to bring women in. So definitely something I'm focused on and universal is as well, which is great. And for our listeners, SWE stands for Society of Women Engineers. Yes, that's right. Absolutely. There you go. Ding, 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 <laughs> ding, ding, ding. Rachel, imagine there's a ton of pressure in your job, right? It's the theme park world, right? Be between your company, Universal and all of the competitors out there. Everything is bigger, better, faster, more fun, larger than life. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the future, right? What's your prediction for some of the trends we'll see as far as theme park attractions go? Maybe even beyond that, also the engineering therein, say within the next like three, five, 10 years. For sure. Um, you know, we saw through aughts and the teens that a lot of companies were focusing on screen-based, motion-based attractions and definitely saw our audience grow to grow some fatigue on that near the end of the last decade and have started shifting away from screen-based back to practical effects, which is something that I'm very grateful for and I know that our guests are as well. Examples include the Secret Life of Pets attraction that we just opened here, the Hagrid's motorbike adventure that we have at IOA in Orlando, and even the Rise of the Resistance ride that Disney's opened at both their parks in America. So that shift back to that practicality is definitely something I think we're going to keep with for a while. And then touching on Rise of the Resistance, their innovative concept of mixing different ride experiences into one attraction is something I think we're going to see get played with a lot over the next couple of years, which would be very cool to see. I don't can know. You, can you share a little bit more? Because yeah. I'm not familiar with Rise of the Resistance. So Rise of the Resistance. I'm going to try to not give anything away to our folks at home. Star Wars. Um, you know it's Star Wars, Jared, right? Star Wars oh, okay. attraction. Got it. So they're, Come on, that Jared. attraction mixes a number of different typical ride systems into one attraction to make it a big experience. 
and there's some motion base, there's some dark ride, there's a lot of practical effects, there's a walking interactive with the cast members part, which is super cool. And I think you're going to see that trying to mix up the experience within the same attraction is going to be something we explore a bit more in this industry over the next couple of years. Also, I'm going to plug, we just opened Mario Kart, the ride here at Universal Hollywood. We have augmented reality glasses that bring gameplay into the ride. And our ride also has a lot of practical effects that interact with that augmented reality. So I think that AR is probably going to find a bit more of a space here to bring in gameplay and uh, making each of your ride experiences unique. Interesting. And I'm curious, you always hear about, and maybe it's not in, in Universal's wheelhouse, but as you go to industry conferences, we're going to get the tallest roller coaster, right? Or the steepest <laughs> roller coaster, right? Or like the most death defying ones. Is that that there must be a lot of pressure in that space as well to push the limits, I imagine. A little bit. That type of pressure is definitely on, on your roller coaster parks, like the Six Flags and the right. Cedar Fair parks of the world. For us, it's what our pressure is, what can we open new soon that is exciting to our guests. And very excitingly, today we just announced that we are opening a Fast and Furious roller coaster at Hollywood. Oh, wow. I don't know if we said what year, but very soon. Very soon. Okay. (laughs) Wow. So for for the listener, take a look, do a quick Google on that. It might take a few years, but but that sounds cool. Very cool. And I'm sure that'll go at some crazy fast speeds. It is supposed to be fast and furious. So yeah. Yes. <laughs> As you would think. Very cool. By the way, do you know the Penn State alum, Bob Holland? He's actually coming on in a few weeks. And I know he's, yes. he's like a legend in, yes, uh, he is. in the he, world of theme parks. I, I think we're talking about this later, but he was our first advisor for the theme park engineering group at Penn State when we okay. started that. Yeah. Perfect. He was our well, advisor. That's a good segue. Let's get into Penn State. We're going to put you in the lines then. Brought to you by our friends at Lions Pride and reminisce about your time at Penn State. Remember to visit lions-pride.com to pick up all your summer apparel and gear. Rachel, really cool to hear about all of your experience so far. It's such a such a fun industry to be a part of. Going back to your days at Penn State, how did your undergrad education prepare you for the early part of your career and professional life? Ooh, education. Engineering school is hard. Sure. No one, <laughs> yeah. ever, no one ever said it was easy, right? <laughs> no. Just the degree. I needed the degree to get my foot in the door anywhere. But going through engineering school and learning, learning how to think and how to find those answers is an incredibly important resource that I learned at Penn State because as I moved into in this industry, I haven't focused on mechanical since I got here. <laughs> I've, I transitioned very quickly into controls, which is not something I studied at school, but I knew how to find answers. I knew where to look. I knew that I could figure it out. And that, that really came a lot from my education experience at Penn State. Experience-wise, I went to Penn State after attending a very small all-girls Catholic high school. So going from that type of culture to 
Penn State University Park, which has tens of thousands of students from all over the place. It was a crazy adjustment for me and really taught me how to work with people from different backgrounds and with different opinions and different personalities, which is besides the theme park industry, important for any industry. So that that was huge for me. And then going into a male dominated education with mechanical engineering, as we've already expressed, I felt very fortunate that no one ever made me feel inferior because I was a woman. I, I know that is sometimes very rare. So I feel very grateful to Penn State, my peers and my professors for having that respect for me and knowing that I could contribute and helping me build that confidence before I went out into the real world where you don't always get that. Yeah, that's great to hear that you were part of such a inclusive, we are community, right? And Absolutely. like the we being emphasized there. You mentioned a little bit before about the theme park engineering group and Bob Holland being an advisor. You were actually a co-founder of that group. I was. Would love to hear about how you started it and how it came about. For sure. I actually almost missed being a co-founder on that. A friend of mine, we were talking one day, I'm like, hey, did you see that ad in the e-newsletter? E-news being the engineering newsletter that we got in the engineering school. I was like, I don't, what are you talking about? And she's like, here, look. And it was these guys looking for folks that wanted to start a theme park club. And I was like, oh my God, this is perfect. <laughs> so I reached out. We met by the fish tank in the hub. Like they tell you, you're eventually yep. going to do when you take your first tour of Penn State. <laughs> and it just came to be. So shout out to Christian Novarell and Shane Haight for meeting with me that morning or that evening and coming up with a vision and executing that. It was incredible to see how quickly it became something. We just put out the word and we found people. We were like a magnet for people. There turns out there were so many students that were interested in this realm, in this industry. And it was, we took off very quickly. We were definitely one of the first student organizations to do the theme park engineering. We were actually partnered with some of our colleagues at Ohio State. They had the very first group and we, they helped us generate ours. A lot of that was focused on just making it into a club and finding what we would do, like how we could practice this at school. And it took a while to get there, but I'm really excited that it's continued since 2010, I think is when we started. We are one of the premier student organizations in the theme park engineering world. We part participate in the various conferences that our industry holds. Our Students are always looked at for internships across the industry, which is awesome, and participate in so many different competitions being held now for college students and that they participate in. And it's really, it's just really awesome to see how that's grown for the college kids. Yeah, that's the beauty of Penn State, right? You, you've got an idea, you've got an interest. Most likely you can find someone in that on that university campus that Absolutely. has the same interest or passion and wants to start a club like you did, which is really cool. This is the toughest question of the podcast. <laughs> Favorite Penn State memory. Oh, it's so hard. 
I had a lot of really good memories with that theme park group and a lot of great memories with my friends and my roommates. This was a really hard one and I narrowed it down to two. Okay. <laughs> Am I allowed to do two? Is that You're allowed. Yeah, we'll accept it. <laughs> okay. So I don't know if they still do this, but in 2012, Cafe 210 did 40 days of cafe and you got to go, you participated in this event where you went 40 days in a row to cafe. <laughs> you had to present a receipt, you got checked in. And then at the end of those 40 days, at the end of the spring semester, they threw a big party for everybody that completed it. And you got your name on a plaque on the wall. And that, so that I ended up doing five years, five, four and a half years at Penn State. So this was the end of my fourth year. And it was just a very, very Penn State thing to do to every day have to go to this bar and just like even grab a soda, but just have a place to go every day with your friends and do a victory lap of your time there, which was awesome because it would be like, all right, we got to go stop a cafe before we go home or hey, guy I haven't seen since sophomore year English class. I've got to go to cafe today. Why don't you come with me and we can catch up? So it was just, I always, it's, it's one of my favorite things that I did there. And it's just so silly, but very Penn State. They did not have one, that when we were there. No, by the way. I, I think we may have achieved that unofficially, Jared. I don't know. <laughs> I'm sure that there, there were some people that that's inspired it. Awesome. Wait, so do they still have that plaque up? Is that something that's still... I haven't been back to State College since before COVID, but it was there in 2019. Okay. And yeah, it, I, I they was had just, kept doing it. I don't know if it died with COVID, which would be really sad. I but. was just in, I was up there in, when was it? For the weekend before Blue White, maybe it was early April. I was there and I was at cafe. So I don't know. Next time I'm there, I'll have to look for it. We'll have to ask our friend Andy, yeah. who lives close by, to fact check that. Andy, it's if you're listening to this, because you listen to all the episodes, you get, next time you're at the cafe, ask the bartenders about the plaque with the 40 days. There you go. There's multiple, because they were for every year. And they're a lot, they were along the wall when you go from the front room into the back room. Just going to say that. Okay, cool. Uh, and and what, was the, two, what was the other one? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, Paterno's 409th win was just incredible to be at as a student. My cousins were up visiting that weekend. We may or may not have snuck them into the student section. And <laughs> being there when that happened and just the sheer ecstasy of that whole stadium was incredible to be a part of. You just felt so, felt so much bigger than yourself. And it is something I'll for, remember forever, absolutely. And then that whole weekend was just a party. Excellent. Hey, so if you could go back and visit with Rachel as an 18 year old, that's about to start her freshman year at Penn state, what advice would you share with yourself? I would tell myself to take advantage of the Penn state theater department more. So I've learned since completing my education that theater, like technical theater and theme parks have such a big overlap in scope and applicability. When I was going to school, a lot of engineering kids were part of the Formula One team, lots of car groups. And I had never had any interest in cars. I was like, I'm a theme park kid. But I feel like getting involved in theater, maybe even getting like a technical theater minor would have been some a really good practical application of some of the engineering principles that I had, been, that I had learned. I also think the theater community would have been a really great community for me to be a part of at that time in my life too. So that would have been my advice. 
That's really interesting advice. Yeah. Usually you think the engineering, right? It's so science, math, yeah. STEM heavy, right? Like on one side and then the more art related theater students mm. on the other side. And it's just speaks mm. to your perspective of like how the theme parks bring both together and how you could have benefited from yeah. that. That's fascinating. I never forget like one of my, within my first year at Thinkwell, someone made the comment like theme parks are just permanent theater sets. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> you put it that way. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I don't know how to think of that. Sticking along the advice lines, when you find out someone is considering Penn State, what do you tell them? Why should they go there? You touched on it earlier, where the we are everywhere thing. This is the reason that pushed me over the edge to choose Penn State, which the alumni network. There are Penn State alums everywhere. I was in a meeting yesterday with a team from Orlando that had other Penn State alums in it. We're everywhere. And it's just, it's a great connection that you can have with someone. It's a great conversation starter. Even people that didn't go to Penn State know Penn State and you can talk about that. And it just helps, really helps you build your network and create those opportunities to just grow. Absolutely. So how do you feel connected to the university today? Are you still in touch with the theme park engineering group? Any others, mentors, advisors, anything with the engineering college? I do talk with the theme park group every once in a while. I wish it was more, but the time difference can be challenging sometimes. They have a award that they named after me, so I'm tied there. Wait, tell us about this. <laughs> yeah, wait, don't gloss over that. <laughs> they made the Founders Awards a year or two ago to award to different graduating members of the group. So myself and Christian and Shane each have one named after us that they give to people. And it's just, wow, I never thought I'd have an award named after me. That's so cool. That's awesome. But actually... Two of my best friends out here in LA are both Penn State grads. So I feel very connected all the time. <laughs> we hang out all the time and we are our football watching parties every Saturday in the fall. Being able to do that with them and having my people to still celebrate and cheer on the Nitty Lions is super connected for me. Those are some early football viewing parties, right? Because that's a 9 a.m. Oh. start, I know, for you guys. When we played in Ireland, I was at the bar watching at, I want to say it was like 5 a.m. Wow. <laughs> Dedication. <laughs> Dedication. True it fan. It was an awesome time, but whew, that was early. <laughs> Do they serve Guinness that early at 5 a.m. at those bars? They served, They were serving us. <laughs> All right. All right. They just didn't shut down from the night before. <laughs> exactly. Keep it going. <laughs> Don't stop. Yeah. This has been a great 45 minutes. First, uh, you know, we just love your story, right? From finding your passion early on, developing it in high school, and then carrying it through at Penn State and founding the club, the diversity of jobs that you've had and roles, and then just your ability, as you mentioned, to find answers, figure it out, problem solve. I also was thinking when you were talking, just you know, when you step back, like you play such an important role in people's memories, right? As I think about my childhood, it was going to, to Disney World. It was going to Universal Studios in Orlando and Hollywood and being with my family and riding those rides. And it's that impact, I think, that I certainly want to recognize 
you for because you make a lot of people's dreams and highlights really come true. Thank you. I really do appreciate that because that that was a really big driving factor for me doing what I do is that I want to be able to create the memories that I got as a kid. Yeah, totally. Totally. Well, we wish you a lot of success and we always end the podcast with we are. State. Lion Legacy is a Baruda production. If you enjoy this Labor of Love podcast, we'd certainly appreciate it if you would subscribe and write us a review on your favorite podcast platform.